Let's start, though, with a much more local story. And as you've been hearing on the news, Vancouver police are implementing new additional public safety measures in specific parts of downtown Vancouver uh, in a response to a number of concerns brought to police by citizens. I don't have specifics on what their concerns are. Um, It's just in general, we have received an overwhelming number of concerns via email and messaging and groups on uh, social media about their safety, people feeling unsafe in the area. That uh, was Constable Tanya Vizintin. She held a news conference at Vancouver Police Headquarters earlier today. Let's bring in Annette O'Shea, Executive Director of the Yaletown Business Improvement Association. Annette, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Jill. What have been your concerns or what have you seen as far as increased crime and people feeling uneasy in that part of the city? Well, you know, it's been it was quite surprising to us. I mean, we're all, you know, we're all been dealing with COVID now for many, many weeks. We were very, very surprised to have uh, quite suddenly a bunch of shelters and a whole different population arrive um, in our district without any of the corresponding supports. So it was kind of like they got parachuted in and dumped in. And then, I don't know, I'm going to say abandoned. And and you're talking about then the the breakup of Oppenheimer Park or the, the movement of people that might have been living in tents in the downtown east side and being now in the Yelltown area? Yes. And, and you know, where they, where they have been before, where they've lived before, there have been some on-ground supports for them, whether it's mental health supports, food uh, security programs, clothing security programs, um, job reentry programs. All of those supports are all contained in one neighborhood. And when you literally remove a bunch of people out of a, out of a district and parachute them into another district where none of those supports are, you've, you've left them in a very rough, tough condition because they don't, we don't have soup kitchens in this neighborhood. We don't have food security programs. We don't have job reentry programs. It's predominantly a residential neighborhood. And I don't know, it just it just feels like they've been kind of left on their own. And then the residents are expected to just sort of deal with a group of people who who don't even know where they can get their own help. Hmm. And are are you seeing an increase or even hearing about an increase in clashes or people who are, I mean, are people being confronted? Oh, yes. yes. We have, um, I mean, as a business district, we've always had mobile patrols um, just to help keep our neighborhood safe. Um, We have burned through our 12-month budget. We've burned through it in three and a half months. So, you know, this, this is an unsustainable problem. Um, and this really, frankly, we, we very much support the VPD and are really glad that they are the people who respond. But this, I mean, they're responding to a situation. We need a plan. And the provincial government, frankly, needs to step up and put the supports in place to support that population and support the neighborhood that is supposed to be trying to deal with them. I mean, we've got shop owners here, you know, they're selling shoes or they're a boutique. They don't have the skills to deal with some of the mental health and addiction issues that are literally walking through their door or bashing through their windows at night. That's really unfair of the provincial government to download this onto a neighborhood that has absolutely no expertise in dealing with it.
What do you say to some of the backlash? And I saw one of the flyers that had been put up in one of the buildings in Yaletown, and it's encouraging people to contact police and the MLA for the area to to raise more awareness about this. Some of the responses to that have been, well, wait a minute. Many other communities have been dealing with these exact issues and exact problems for years, and they don't suddenly get a bump in resources from the VPD and wondering if it's people with the means to to mobilize and do this, getting special attention. I don't think it's that at all. I mean, the other the other areas of the city where some of these issues exist, those issues have grown slowly over the years. And I do believe that the province needs to have stepped in with a plan over the years. They've had decades to come up with a solution. That's not the same as the situation here in Yaletown, where one day we don't have that population and quite literally the next day we do. So there's no chance, there's no time for the neighbourhood to even get the resources in to support anybody. They're literally just dropped in. You know, it's a bit like setting off some fireworks in your living room. You're not prepared for it. How are you supposed to deal with it? Do you think that this implementation of additional measures by VPD, will that make a difference? Or are you talking about more things like temporary housing, more support systems for people who are now in the neighbourhood? Well, VPD, the Vancouver Police Department, we support them. We've, in fact, donated bikes to them for their patrols. Um, We definitely support them, but their support is symptomatic. I mean, they're only able to respond to a situation this, and this is not this is not something that our city can continue to deal with at a police level. It needs to be. What's the plan? Where are the supports for this population? There's mental health issues. There's food security issues. There's housing issues. Every, why is it temporary? This is this is not a temporary problem. This problem's been in existence for years. It's time that the province step up, quite frankly, and put some plans into place to support the new community and the existing community. This, this can work, but putting it all on the police is, is you know, they are a hammer for a nail. Like that, that's not going to make this work long term. Uh, do you think there would be support, though? And I know the, the hotel, the Howard Johnson, the purchase of the Howard Johnson at Granville and Davey uh, has been talked about. It, and it actually is mentioned in the letter that I saw that had been posted uh, saying that because a lot of residents from Oppenheimer Park are now housed at that hotel, that's part of the issue. But if that hotel was made into permanent housing with supports, do you think that the community would be in favor of that? I think that it would at least lower the fear. Right now, the fear is real and it is based on crime issues. Um, I get to see some of the the Vancouver police reports. Um, the street disorder crime has jumped 400 and some odd percent. I mean, enough that we're now doing seven days a week patrols on top of the additional police patrols. So, you know, anytime you can remove, reduce the fear that this population does need some of those supports, quite frankly, we need to get the bear bangers out of the equation because you're also dealing with a neighborhood that, that is not getting two or three hours even in a night of sleep. The bear bangers are going off at two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning. Hmm. All right. Well, Annette, we'll leave it there. And uh, I know there'll be more discussion on this and, and more follow up, but I do appreciate you making some time for us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope we can find some solutions.
Well, some new numbers are out when it comes to real estate sales and listing activity in Greater Vancouver. And we wanted to talk about this because it might surprise you in the to find out the direction and where things stand when it comes to uh, the increase in home sale and listing activity. So to talk more about this, let's bring in Colette Gerber, the Real Estate Board of, Van- of Greater Vancouver Chair. Colette, great to have you back on the show today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Uh, I know the results come out uh, monthly, and we've been talking a lot about this anticipation of a drop in sales, a drop in prices before any kind of rebound. But what do the numbers that we're seeing today tell us? Uh, The numbers today are very encouraging. Sales are up uh, 65% over last month. And what that tells us is that as the economy has opened up, a certain amount of comfort is uh, back between buyers and sellers as they're working with their realtors. Uh, Safety protocols are standard now, being practiced by everyone. And a lot of business is able to be done virtually. So uh, more sales seem to be happening. And what about prices? Prices have remained uh, relatively stable. There's been a little bit, you know, 0.3% up or down. But really, uh, that just says to me prices are stable. Uh, so let's look at, at, at sales then, because there was this uh, idea that when the pandemic started, we, we saw things change so much as far as open houses were cancelled. I don't believe they've started up yet. It's still a lot uh, by appointment only. I've been hearing anecdotally, though, through f- from uh, friends who are working real estate, they're still seeing a lot of situations where they're getting multiple offers, places are going for above the asking price. Uh, but what do you think has led the, this push or this recovery when it comes to the number of listings? Uh, with buyers and sellers getting more comfortable using technology, with realtors able to uh, do virtual tours, uh, increased number of high-resolution pictures on listings, people are able to actually pre-screen a property before they finally decide that, yes, I'm a buyer and this might be my new home and so making the appointment to actually go and see it. As far as multiple offers are concerned, even though our listings have increased um, 23% over last year, so they're currently at around 11,400, we're still below our typical 14,000 listings. And so the choice is still somewhat limited. And if a property is uh, being priced properly for the current market environment, you'll see multiple offers. And are we talking about all types of properties or is there one particular area that's seeing more stability or more growth than others? Um, No, this seems to be right across the board. We're seeing a a bigger uptake in single-family homes, townhouses, condos. Everyone's busy. And what do you think of the the numbers then, even looking, and you kind of touched on this, but if we look at the numbers themselves, so residential (laughs) home sales in in Greater Vancouver, so for June of 2020, so last month, uh, saw a 17.6% increase from June of 2019. Because I think if you ask people uh, just what they might think, they, they might have said that they wouldn't have anticipated any increase at all. Um. The 
pent-up demand that was there at the beginning of the year um, and had the brakes put on it in mid-March has returned to the market. You know, during times of crisis, shelter needs don't go away. And as the economy has opened up and buyers in particular are getting more comfortable with what's happening, uh, that's part of the probably the largest part of the driver for the increase in sales. Uh, and does it factor in then, because there's been a lot of talk as well about who buys homes in Greater Vancouver and saying with the, the with travel really coming to a standstill, for the most part, we don't have foreign buyers nearly as much. And also with people who have job insecurity, they don't know whether they've lost, if they've lost their jobs or if they've had their hours cut back or they're not quite sure of what's going to be happening with their employment and with their salary in the future. Yes, uh, that's true. But Vancouver market, the lower mainland market, has traditionally been residents moving uh, within the locations, moving into different property types. Uh, We haven't been as dependent on foreign buyers as uh, some people might think. It's really been quite local and... We're actually, the the Lower Mainland is a large region, a lot of people, a lot of people wanting to sell and move. So that's where your business is coming from. And does that also come into play with the the price point that we're talking about? I think in the numbers released today, it's saying that the the benchmark price for all residential properties, Metro Vancouver, is just uh, slightly north of $1 million right now, which is still a lot of money. But if we're talking about foreign buyers and investors, that's not the properties they're looking at. Exactly. Uh, Foreign buyers and investors um, have to pay uh, 20% on... um, uh, foreign buyer's tax, which really takes your uh, cost of a property to a much higher level. So with the properties being still around the, the million-dollar mark, the lower mainland is a great place to live, and people are investing in their future when they're buying here. Uh, how would you sum up then, looking at the numbers released today, how would you sum up, uh, what, how would you describe them? The buyers, um, I would describe the buyers as being locals who've been carefully monitoring the market with the help of their realtors and assessing that, yes, prices have remained stable for quite some time. Interest rates on mortgages are really at an all-time low. Now is a perfect time to make your move. All right, Colette, always good to talk with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for being with us on this Friday afternoon. Well, an international group of think tanks from 35 nations and territories all around the globe have put together an open letter that condemns the actions of the Communist Party of China and supports the people of Hong Kong. As we know, on Tuesday, China's National People's Congress passed the National Security Law, and that's in violation of what many would say is Hong Kong's basic law encroaching on freedoms and liberties in that city. The letter itself condemns the government in China. It is signed by 37 member organizations, all of the Economic Freedom of the World Network, and that network is led by the Fraser Institute. So we are going to check in right now with Fred McMahon, resident fellow at the Fraser Institute. He also heads up their economic freedom research. Fred, thank you so much for being with us. 
Well, thank you so much for your interest. Uh, it's a very interesting letter. Talk a little bit, if you can. What is the main point or points that are being made in this letter? Uh, actually, let me start by complimenting you. I was very impressed by the way you said things. It's all too easy in this climate to blame China for something or say the Chinese are doing something. You were very specific in calling it the Communist Party of uh, China and the government of China. And I think that's important to bear in mind. Uh, Hong Kong is one of not just today's greatest cities, but one of the world's greatest cities. And it's absolutely clear that the Communist Party of China is intent on crushing the freedom of Hong Kong and bringing it under uh, the control of the party, uh, crushing uh, independent uh, thought, crushing history, uh, crushing uh, initiative. It's one of the saddest moments of this new of this relatively new century. And is is that the the crux of the letter? Because I know you've also done studies on this and taking a look and using actually Hong Kong as an example of a, a, an area, a part of the world that has made leaps and bounds when it comes as being prosperous, when it comes to to being economically free, and that's all in jeopardy right now. Uh, the uh, accomplishments of Hong Kong uh, are are amazing. Yes, for a long time. Uh, uh, Hong Kong has been the economically freest place in the world, the place where uh, people's uh, freedom to make their own economic decisions is least hindered by government and least hindered uh, by crony elites. Uh, At the end of the Second World War, people forget Hong Kong was absolutely devastated. It was occupied by Japan uh, brutally. Much of the city was destroyed. Uh, it had no natural resources. Of course, uh, uh, the Chinese Communist uh, Revolution came a few years later. And yet somehow this isolated little spit of land uh, with no resources uh, became one of the most prosperous and innovative uh, uh, cities to ever have been. Let me just say one more thing. We also at Fraser, in cooperation with the Cato Institute in the United States, Uh, states measure overall human freedom, including economic freedom. And up until a few years ago, Hong Kong had the world's highest level of human freedom. Now, we didn't measure political freedom, i.e. democracy, but we measured all other aspects of freedom, whether uh, gays uh, are given uh, equal rights, uh, whether there's violence, whether... uh, The courts can be depended upon. And up until about three years ago, Hong Kong was number one. And is that what you would define then as human freedoms? Uh, Yes. Well, human freedoms are the whole range of things. Uh, Religious freedom, which is being crushed in China, freedom of assembly, freedom of uh, speech, freedom of relationships, very important, and uh, security. Uh, If you can do it, just about anything you want, but you're going to get killed the moment you leave, you, uh, the, you open the front door, you really don't have any freedom. And Hong Kong had the whole package. What do you hope that this letter does? I mean, we're looking at what the government in China is doing. They tend not to listen to others or pay much attention when others aren't pleased with some of their actions. But what are you hoping will be the outcome of, of putting this open letter out there? 
Uh, I hope this is just one uh, more relatively small brick in the building uh, as the uh, world comes to appreciate uh, the horrors of uh, the Communist Party uh, of China. It's not just Hong Kong. They continually threaten to invade Taiwan, and at some point they almost inevitably uh, will if things don't change. Um, they're bullying their neighbors, sinking, I think it was, an Indonesian or Vietnamese fishing boat uh, recently, the attack uh, in Kashmir on Indian uh, troops. Um, their uh, attempts to influence politics in other nations, most notably Australia, and their attempt to use uh, the Chinese community, and this is horrible, attempt to use that community uh, to enforce uh, obedience to the Communist Party of, uh, of China. So I hope that this is just part of the growing realization of how horrible things are. And I would suggest fairly radical action, looking at kicking China out of the WTO. Uh, we, we saw some action today uh, from our Canadian government uh, as far as suspending the extradition treaty and talking about uh, to being a bit more careful, I suppose, when it comes to trade with China. Do you think more governments, including the Canadian government, government need to take a stronger stance? Well, I forget which scholar it was, but whoever it was noted that... Uh, uh, Talking softly and carrying no stick was getting Canada nowhere. Um, so, yes, we have to uh, uh, ramp up, find other uh, approaches, and we have to do things that are really going to bother the Communist Party of, uh, of, chi of China. The, uh, um, uh, so long as they can cheat on the world trade systems, uh, uh, steal property, uh, threaten others, and have no significant response. I mean, uh, a few uh, exclusions are nice, but it's not really going to rock the CPC. Uh, I think, as I say, we have to look at deeper action, including moving China out of the world trade uh, organizations. It's a big cheat. This would even help um, uh, restore trust in global trade and globalization. All right. Well, Fred, we will leave it there. But thank you so much for taking some time to talk about this today. Well, again, I really appreciate your interest. We were just talking about that open letter penned that condemns the actions of the government in China. We now know that Canada has suspended its Hong Kong extradition treaty as well. That's in response to the new security law. Let's bring in immigration lawyer and policy analyst Richard Curlin to talk a little bit more about this. Richard, great to have you back on the show. A pleasure. Uh, let's unpack this a little bit first mm. with the suspension of the extradition treaty. What does that do? Well, uh, it treats Hong Kong as if legally it is mainland China for extradition purposes. It means that uh, because of uh, China's human rights track record and respect for Western values in their legal system, uh, we don't have an extradition treaty with China. So now we don't have an extradition treaty with Hong Kong. And will that come as a relief, do you think, for people? Mm. Because from what I'm reading, it's not only people who might be in Hong Kong who speak out against the government. It could be people anywhere. 
oh my goodness, that net is cast wide and large. It is not exclusive to residents of Hong Kong. If you're a Canadian citizen and you hold some status in Hong Kong, Canada can save you. If you're a Canadian tourist or traveler uh, that uh, passes through Hong Kong territory, as in the airport, uh, you're subject to detention under the security law. Uh, A lot of people are going to run afoul. Um, Remember, uh, the statement written on a sign expressed orally regarding Hong Kong independence is a no-no. And that means if, unbeknownst to you, there's some email in your laptop or cell phone uh, that has that kind of statement, you might be in for a very nasty surprise when traveling through Hong Kong if you are dinged by uh, security officials. Uh, so what could happen then? And that's a good example. You're Canadian, maybe you're traveling to Hong Kong, maybe you have family there, and yeah, you've at some point in your life expressed support for independence. Well, here's my concern based on what's going on in some immigration cases right here in Vancouver that have been reported widely. China doesn't just go after a suspect. China goes after the innocent family members of a suspect to pressure the suspect. So if you know nothing about one of your relatives who's in Hong Kong and China identifies you as a relation, you're at risk. Uh, Remember, it's not like Canada. Uh, Look at the two Michaels. They were detained with little or no legal access, no charges for a long time. So this is very serious, and people should not take the risk, uh, unless absolutely necessary, of traversing that territory effective today. What about people living in Hong Kong right now? I think there's about 300,000 people in Hong Kong that are also Mm. Canadian citizens. Yeah, well, it's not just uh, my office, but my colleagues across the country since this law came in uh, have been (laughs) almost swarmed uh, with email calls, requests for meetings. Uh, This time, it's serious. And the 300,000 Canadians uh, have the right to enter Canada. Uh, So do the permanent residents. But uh, there's a giant question mark with uh, young people who don't have a Canadian connection. And and, uh, the typical profile we're seeing this week are individuals who immigrated to Canada Uh, during the 1990s, and then saw a better economic opportunity in Hong Kong returned. They were permanent residents, not Canadian. Well, their children may have been permanent residents, but due to the many uh, years that have passed, uh, they've effectively lost uh, permanent residents, not legally, but effectively. So somehow, if uh, Canada could give a break to the children, who have legally permanent resident status but ran afoul the uh, uh, two years on five rule. You have to spend two years in Canada to retain permanent residence. If Canada can give a break to that profile, that might save a lot of young, industrious, English-speaking, well-educated people who can come back to Canada and pay taxes. So do you think we're going to see, does Canada need to take that step? Or do you think, regardless of that, are we going to see a large number of people from Hong Kong coming to Canada? Well, look, the writing's on the wall here. This is Berlin. You're looking out your window, and you see soldiers putting down bricks to build a wall. This is same old, same old. And my bet is that in the next two months, you're going to see China 
boosting its capacity for electronic surveillance. You're going to see cameras where there were no cameras before. Audio surveillance, where that was never the, 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 the situation. And uh, China will then use that capacity to surveil the domestic population in Hong Kong and implement what China has done in other areas of China that uh, gave headaches to Beijing. Now, this is just the beginning. Uh, and even your travel insurance, I'm not sure whether you're covered, given the travel advisory with Hong Kong. So if you don't have to go to Hong Kong, don't. Why do you think this is happening now in that we were supposed to see the one country, two systems until 2047? Yeah, yeah. Um, it doesn't augur well that China defaults effectively on a commitment. Uh, so if you look at that as an example, there's no, how, how can you deem credible China's promise to release the two Michaels uh, when, when uh, Ms. Meng uh, may be released uh, from Canada? I, I put zero faith in a Chinese promise from that government effective today. Hmm. Uh, so you're saying if you don't have to travel there, don't travel there. And, and again, there are so many people that have family there. Do you, do you anticipate? I'm, get, I'm guessing that you're getting calls from people saying, how do yeah. I get my family out of there and get them home? Well, it's good to see that uh, Ottawa Prime Minister's office may have this thing under control. Right now, immigration policy is being revised. I suspect we're going to see an opening for large quantities of mobility programs, so those are working holidays to attract young Hong Kong uh, uh, workers. As well, we're likely going to see facilitated uh, uh, extensions of status in Canada for people from Hong Kong. And I hope, I hope that Ottawa decides to prioritize all Hong Kong cases in immigration processing inventory, from family class to you name it. Get them out. Get them here. And I've only got 30 seconds, so I don't know yeah. if you can, can answer this, but is there no standing up to China? Is there nothing that other countries can do to stop oh, this? Yeah. I, I uh, recommend uh, inviting the Taiwan ping pong team to Ottawa. <laughs> do you think that would actually make a difference? Uh, it, it's an irritant because if you aim at the heart, uh, you will motivate a Politburo to look twice uh, at the price of doing what they intend to do. Don't make it cheap. Don't make it free. Put a, put a cost, diplomatic, political trade. Otherwise, it's, we're going to see this like Groundhog Day again and again and again. All right, Richard, thank you so much. We'll leave it there, but thanks for coming on the show. <laughs> Pleasure. Thanks, Joe. Well, we are going to shift gears a little bit and take a look at a petition. It is aimed, the goal is to ban the online sale of animals. And this follows a horrific story about a number of dogs that were flown to Canada and were not still alive when they arrived in this province. The petition has been started by Dr. Adrian Walton, who is a veterinarian with the Dudney Animal Hospital. And Adrian Walton joins me on the line now. Thank you so much for doing this. Well, thank you for having me on. What specifically are you hoping for? What does this petition call for? Well, one of the things that we've been seeing is an increase in the number of people acquiring pets, far, that, far more than exceeds what local breeders really can supply. And what we're seeing is a large number of dogs being basically sold through Kijiji. And we're starting to think that what's going on is we've actually offshored our puppy mills to other countries. And with these 500 animals coming in, uh, that's a pretty good indication that this is actually happening. Now, 
I'm not a politician, I'm not a lawyer, but I can see that there is a common denominator, and that's how these animals are being sold. And that's through websites like Kijiji. Uh, And that's an area where I think that I can maybe make a difference and try and at least curtail the international trade in puppy mill dogs. Uh, because are we talking about two different things when we take a look at there are animal rescue organizations and although some have been called into question there are groups that bring dogs in from southern california from mexico from iran from different countries that are rescue animals and the the whole thinking behind that is these animals have been left for dead they're not treated well and they come to bc and are given great homes or is this are these more of puppy mill kind of designer dogs that are that are bred in another country and then brought to BC? Well, those are actually both major areas of concern, but specifically the dogs that were being brought in from the Ukraine are purebred or mixed breed dogs, puppies that are being brought in for sale as purebred animals here in the country. Um, and, and this is, if you think about the, if for anybody who's even had one puppy, the amount of work that that entails, imagine what it must be to try and organize the breeding and, and puppy production for 500 animals, the transportation requirements to get them to the airport, and then here in Canada to be able to house and find uh, and market these animals on uh, Kijiji and other sites. This is an indication that this is a large-scale commercial operation. Basically, it's an online pet store working through Kijiji. So my focus right now is specifically the, the international trade in puppies, not so much rescues. Right. And so this specific case as well is being investigated by the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. That's the agency in charge of animals being imported. Uh, Do you think that that agency has a bigger role to play in this as well? Well, by law, if you're shipping animals and puppies into Canada, you actually have to apply for a permit. And it usually takes about a month ahead of time. So In theory, the CFIA should have known that this airline full of dogs was coming in. If they didn't, then that's an indication that we actually have a large-scale smuggling operation. So not only should CFIA be involved, not only just because, uh, again, it comes down to their purview, but also because this is a great way for disease to be brought into our native or to our own pets. Uh, so they they have to be involved. But unfortunately, Customs Canada, uh, as well as the RCMP, might have to have a role to play in finding out what exactly happened here. Right. So, And this is, in case people don't remember this happening, it wasn't that long ago. It was mid-June. Uh, more than 500 animals were on this flight, the majority dogs, and unfortunately 38 were dead when they arrived at the airport. That seems like such a large number of animals. It seems crazy, doesn't it, that the CFIA wouldn't have known about this? Well, that's the problem. We don't know at this point. We're, we're waiting to hear back from the CFIA. I, I do know that they... Uh, were surprised by the number of animals that had arrived in terms of uh, the the numbers of deaths. Uh, That much has been publicized, but unfortunately, until they release a report, we're kind of in the dark here. And as I say, I have no more connections or understanding of what happened there than anyone else. But I do see that there is that common denominator, which is people are buying these animals. And the easiest way for them to sell them is through online sites like Kijiji.
So if you were to shut that down or making it illegal to, to sell pets, to sell dogs, cats, other pets on these online sites, do you think that would help fix the problem? No, unfortunately, I, I think it's a large, complicated problem. I think that people are going to always find a way to find animals. But honestly, it, when I was a kid, we were still able to find a puppy for our family without <laughs> relying on Kijiji or other sites. It means that we as consumers might have to do a little bit more legwork. It means that we might have to reach out to the CKC and put our name on a waiting list for a puppy. But that's not really a bad thing because really buying a puppy should not be an impulse buy. And one of the the concerns that we hear from people that go that route is often that there aren't enough dogs in BC or small dogs in BC, and that's why they depend on on importing them, or that it's so difficult to get a dog and that so many people live in small spaces, and even if you promise that you're going to give this dog the best life, it's very difficult to qualify. Uh, Do you think maybe there's some room there or that needs to be looked at as far as why people are drawn to these sites to get dogs? Certainly. And look, we made a huge move back about 10 years ago to ban the sale of puppies through pet stores. And the reason we did that was because of the concerns about these animals being produced in puppy mills. The truth is, we still have puppy mills. All we have done is basically push those puppy mills to other countries. That's not ethical. We, we do need to revisit how we produce puppies for the pet trade, because right now, we have no control over it. Now, a few years ago, the Liberal government passed legislation to allow for inspection and registering of puppy breeders here in British Columbia. However, the, conserv- the NDP government here has not followed up on that. If we have a way for the SPCA to monitor people producing puppies, people selling puppies, maybe we can get a little bit of a handle on the whole problem. And yes, we probably are going to need to have people here in Canada that are breeding animals for the pet trade, but we should be able to investigate them, inspect them, basically follow up, make sure that they are treating those animals with the care and respect they should, because otherwise that cute puppy that you got is the product of some pretty horrific living conditions for the mom. And and as somebody who has actually been on SBCA investigations into puppy mills, I can tell you that those conditions are, well, I can say the Langley 66 one, I have nightmares and it's been five years Hmm. and I still remember it. And that's a difficult one too, isn't it? In that when people see that, or if they even get the slight idea or look into that window, they're probably thinking that you're rescuing a dog from this horrific situation, which you are. But if all you're doing is adopting a dog from that, you're, you're also helping it continue, aren't you? Well, you didn't rescue that dog. You bought that dog. Because if you didn't, somebody else would have bought it and that dog still would have been taken out of that conditions. Unfortunately, if you purchase a dog from a puppy mill, you're actually contributing to the neglect of the mother and all of the other dogs that are in that facility. 
And that's why I'm saying we need to revisit how puppies are supplied to us. They're, and again, I'm just a lowly veterinarian, <laughs> small town Maple Ridge. My, I can only focus on one area where I see a problem, and that's Kijiji. But we as a society, we do need to sit there and going, okay, we want our puppies. We want to have them be affordable. We want them to be healthy. And we want them to be from breeding facilities that are clean and healthy and and the parents live normal, happy lives. But Kijiji and other sites like that are not contributing to that. They're actually just as much of a problem as when we went to pet stores and bought the puppies there. All right. Where is the petition? Where can people see it, sign it if they like, or take a look at it? Well, uh, it is on uh, the Canada petitions. If you Google Canada petitions, it's it's actually the Canadian government that we are petitioning it to. Uh, or you can find it on our Facebook page at uh, Dunivet. All right. Uh, Adrian, thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much.